You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Blair. And um, speaking of uh, Pastor Blair giving kids noisemakers and us uh, feeling bitter and angry against him for that, we will be uh, talking about forgiveness today. So you'll have to forgive him by the end of this thing. All right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're continuing through our sermon series through Luke, so we're just going to jump right in this morning because there's a lot going on here. And so we're just going to just going to go into it. So Luke 17, 1 to 10, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me there. It'll be on the screen behind me. Luke 17, 1 to 10. It says this, and Jesus said, excuse me, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, theologian Charles Spurgeon once wrote, To be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet, there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. And I I don't want to boast or anything, but because of me, my wife gets to taste this sweetness of forgiveness almost daily. And what I mean is, I always mess up, and she gets to forgive me. So you're welcome um, for that sweetness. But seriously, though, Spurgeon, Spurgeon is, is on to something here, isn't he? There's such an overwhelming freedom, our feeling of freedom and, and joy when we're forgiven by others for something that, that we've done, especially when, when we've done nothing to deserve that forgiveness. It's incredible. It's an incredible feeling. But on the other side of the same coin, there's also an incredible amount of freedom when we can bring ourselves to forgive those who've hurt us. And as, as Jesus reminds us quite, quite seriously here, to forgive others is, is simply a defining characteristic of, 
of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. In, in fact, he teaches us through this, this parable that, that doing the work of the Lord, which includes forgiving someone, that, that it isn't a, a special exception for just the extremely faithful. It's not, it's not extra, it's not optional, and neither is it something that, which makes us worthy of a great reward. Rather, it's like the responsibilities which the faithful servant accomplishes for his master. That They're simply what's expected of him. He's an unworthy servant just doing his duty. He doesn't get that extra reward or a gold medal or even a reason to boast for simply doing his regular job. As Warren Wearsby writes, this story emphasizes faithfulness to duty no matter what the demands might be. And the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If a common servant is faithful to obey the orders of his master who does not reward or thank him, how much more ought Christ's disciples obey their loving master who has promised to reward them graciously? So bottom line here is that as spirit-filled believers who are saved in Christ, we're not simply called and told to live with an attitude of generous grace. Rather, it should be part of who we are now are. It's basic Christianity 101. In fact, upon further, further study, we can actually find that according to Jesus, there's absolutely no room in the kingdom for any kind of character or action which is at odds with this. Albert Muller writes, citizens of God's kingdom are characterized by mercy, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. We are included in God's kingdom only by his act of forgiving us. And as a result, we are those who forgive one another, even when we might want to do otherwise. The kingdom of God is no place for malice and unchecked bitterness. So this quote is a a perfect summary of what Jesus is teaching in this passage is all about. And and in an age when when many are, are so quick to be offended and to harbor that offense, I'd say it's a pretty relevant and timely word for us. Wouldn't you agree? And so I, I, just, I pray that as we learn this and, and as, we, as we go through this convicting word today, uh, that it'll move us to, first of all, taste the sweetness of what it means to be forgiven. And secondly, bring us to a place where we can truly experience the even greater sweetness of forgiving others. And before I continue, I'm going to pray again. Heavenly Father, this, this is a challenging and convicting word. But Lord, we thank you that your word cuts to the heart, cuts to the marrow. Lord, so I pray that as we go through, that, 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 that it would cut through us, Lord. That it would cut deep in, into the places where we're still harboring bitterness, where we're still harboring that, that, that inability or, or the, these excuses and justifications to not forgive, Lord. I pray that as we're reminded of your grace, that we would be able to extend that grace to others. Lord, open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Soften our hearts that we might receive your grace and give it to others, Lord. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to be honest with you all. Uh, And and in fact, I think I've confessed confessed this before because I like whining about it. Uh, I don't like working out, right? I think I've said that before. I don't like working out. It's exhausting. It makes my muscles sore for days. The sweat stings my eyes because I don't have any hair to stop it from getting into my face. 
like I could I could whine and complain about working out forever. Uh, but but despite the fact that I don't like working out, I do work out on occasion because I do like being healthy. I like enjoying life. I like being able to keep up with my kids, and I like playing soccer. And so being fit definitely helps with uh, with that and not having to throw up after every shift. Um, unfortunately then I have to agree with the lady on my wife's workout videos who's always saying stuff like, it's going to be hard, but it's so worth it. And you know what? Forgiving someone is a lot like that, right? Forgiving someone is a lot like that. It's hard, but it's so worth it. The problem, of course, is that it is hard. Which is why sometimes when we're told to do it, we have a tendency to act like children being forced to apologize or forgive their siblings. Like, do I have to, right? And maybe some of you are nursing a grudge right now, and so you're currently having that, that same conversation with God. Do I have to? You don't know what they did to me. And so it's no wonder then that when Jesus tells his disciples that they must forgive their repentant brother and to even forgive him seven times a day if need be, it's really no surprise that their response is, Lord, increase our faith. That's a hilarious response, right? But, but yet it's extremely true because Lord knows we can't do this without him. We can't. To forgive the same person seven times in a day? Imagine if the same person did, did, the same, did the same thing against you seven times in a row, and every time they're like, I'm sorry. Are you kidding me? One time is, is hard enough in some circumstances. So, so in response to their re request of increasing their faith, Jesus tells them, and I, and I think he's speaking mostly in hyperbole here, but uh, he tells them that a mulberry tree could, could, be, could be uprooted and then moved into the sea where it can still thrive, and, and, and that you can do this only with the faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a super small seed. And so what I think he's implying here is that if, if having faith the size of a mustard seed could do that, could do something that, that intense, that crazy, that impossible, then we should be able to do what he's asking us to do here, even if we only have just a, like a shred, an ounce of faith in him. Because, of course, it's not the size of the faith that matters, but rather the source of our faith, the object of our faith. And so if our faith is on him, he'll strengthen us, and he'll give us the capacity to do what he's calling us to do and compassionately and generously forgiving others. And so, but, but why is it so hard to do then? What, what keeps us from extending grace to one another? Well, I'm going to list seven reasons, since the number seven seems to be the number today, though this list certainly isn't exhaustive. It would depend on the circumstance and all that kind of stuff. But I'll give you seven reasons that we might not forgive. Number one, we might refuse to forgive because we want to see justice, which is fair, right? We, we want to see justice. We don't want to let the guilty off the hook. We want to see fairness and, and appropriate judgment for the harm that they've doled out 
And in the same vein, we might also feel like forgiving them would just be rewarding or even condoning the person for their sinful actions. So we don't forgive because we want to see justice. Number two, another reason we might not forgive is because we're selfish or ungrateful. Another way to put it is that we're takers. We'll take forgiveness. We'll gladly take forgiveness, right? But we won't give it. We might even expect or feel entitled to be forgiven our debts because it's, because it's me, right? But yet we can't bear to give anyone else the same grace. This reminds me of another parable Jesus told about a man who was forgiven his great financial debts by his master, but, but then this man turned around and refused to offer even a smaller measure of forgiveness to his own servant. Instead, he had his servant beaten and jailed for not paying up. So this man is a, a prime example of a selfish and ungrateful taker, right? He took forgiveness of his own debt, but he also wanted to take the debts that were owed to him. And all, all in all, and, and, and despite what we might think theologically about what Jesus accomplished at the cross and paying for the sins of everybody, when we selfishly accept forgiveness without offering it to others, we're functionally displaying that we think the cross was enough to pay for our own sins, but that it wasn't enough to pay for the sins of the person who hurt us. Do we get that? that? That's pretty serious. When we selfishly accept forgiveness without offering it to others, we're functionally displaying that we think the cross was enough to pay for our own sins, but that it wasn't enough to pay for the sin of the person who hurt us. Which leads me to the next point. Another reason we might not forgive is because we want to maintain control. Right? We want to win or we want to maintain control. In that scenario, we might keep our forgiveness just a little bit out of reach from that, from that person, right? And, so, and we play the victim card in order to make that person who's, who's wronged us feel ashamed and guilty for, for as long as possible as a type of emotionally manipulative tool or a kind of leverage over them until we've decided they've paid their debt in full. The irony there is that in that scenario, we're, we're not in control at all. We've only become slaves to our own hurt and bitterness and so on. And number four, another reason we might fail to forgive is that maybe we're actually just really hurt and deeply damaged and angry. And it's actually just really hard to emotionally get to that place of forgiveness. Because, again, forgiveness is never easy. Sometimes, sometimes forgiving someone hurts more than the initial pain they caused us. I mean, Jesus had to hang on the, on the cross to forgive us. Forgiveness isn't easy, and it's rarely possible in our own strength. Number five, maybe we don't forgive because we've forgotten or don't fully grasp the amount of grace that we've been given for our own sin. And so we fail to extend it to others. Number six, Another reason we might not forgive is because it might feel like a sign of weakness. Of course, for many cultures, it is seen as a sign of weakness, including our own in, in many respects. We, you know, cancel people on Twitter. We celebrate movies about 
vendettas and revenge and we think it's cool and tough. And while they can be entertaining, sure, the reality of this is, is, is that it takes way more strength. It takes way more courage. It takes way more sacrifice to forgive someone than it does to take revenge or harbor bitterness against them. Number seven, and finally, another reason we might not forgive is that maybe we feel we're too guilty and too far gone ourselves to truly receive forgiveness or love from God. And so if we lack the capacity to see ourselves the way, see, the way God sees us in Christ, if we haven't actually received forgiveness, of course we'll be unable to forgive others. Okay, that, so that's seven reasons, or excuses, rather, as to why sometimes we might refuse or find it hard to forgive. And while there, again, there are definitely more, at the end of the day, whatever the reason is, when we refuse to forgive one another, we're only demonstrating a heart that hasn't been changed by the Spirit of God. We're demonstrating a heart that's still imprisoned by bitterness and pride. More than that, we're demonstrating that we think that we have the right to sit on the throne of God as the judge and jury of other human beings, sometimes even as the executioner too. But on that end, we're warned by Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 2. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it's pretty simple. If, if we judge people based on their actions, we're actually giving God permission to judge us in the same way. Right? To be clear, that would not be good for us. Right? For Jesus once also said, or also once said during the Sermon on the Mount, that if we can't forgive, we won't be forgiven. That's a pretty serious promise. And as is this challenge from him when he says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And make no mistake, when we choose to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness, we're choosing to cast our stones. Again, we're making ourselves the judge and refusing to believe that other sinners deserve the same measure of grace which we've been given. And you might think, but wait a minute. Jesus tells us in this passage that when another believer sins, we're supposed to rebuke them. Aha! Gotcha! That's true. But that statement isn't an excuse or a free pass to accuse or shame or condemn or embarrass or be hypercritical of anyone and everyone who sins. We often think it is, though. Rather, it's incredibly important we understand that the primary purpose and goal of rebuking someone is to seek restoration through repentance and forgiveness. In fact, when we take a look at the, the beginning of the passage we read this morning from Luke 17, Jesus teaches us that since temptations are sure to come, because we, we live in a broken and sinful world, since temptations are sure to come, we should then make sure of two things. First, 
We should make sure that we aren't the causation of any temptation for another believer and therefore the, the possible root cause of, of someone being led to sin, especially because the penalty for doing so, he says, would be worse than having a millstone, which is a big giant rock, a millstone hung around your neck and being thrown into the sea. That doesn't sound very fun. So I think we should take this seriously to not cause each other to sin or to tempt one another. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, Jesus teaches us that we're also called to look out for one another. Watch out for yourselves. In other words, we need to be watching each other's backs. And, and this is so integral. We need each other, right? We, because no one, no one in the church is perfect. Who, who here is perfect? Who's here, who here has never made a mistake or sinned against someone else? That's what I thought. My hand was just up because as, as an example. I'm definitely not perfect. The truth is that we all face temptation, right? And we all give into it sometimes. For as it says in 1 John 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, no one is righteous, right? Not one. The issue then is, is what we're called to do when sin does show up. When there's an argument or when there's hypocrisy or, or when someone falls into addiction or whatever, right? What do we do when sin does show up, especially when that individual sin affects us personally? And again, according to Jesus, our first response, our desire should be to seek to restore that person back into the body of Christ. Or as it says in Galatians 6, 1-3, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are walking by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So restoration is the goal in this process, right? Restoration is the goal. And so if we ever rebuke another believer for their sin with, with, with any ulterior motive or reason other than to rehabil rehabilitate them in their faith by, by forgiving them and even helping carry their burden until they're restored, if we're doing it for any other reason than that, then we are not doing it right. We're especially not doing it right if we think we're something when we are nothing, right? That is, when we're acting like arrogant, pretentious, hypercritical, self-righteous jerks in the way we rebuke somebody. That's the opposite of helpful. 
In fact, that type of Pharisaical-like sin is just as bad and maybe worse than whatever we'd be pointing out in someone else. As Paul David Tripp writes, when I really reflect on who I am, when I take time to consider the grace that I couldn't have earned, achieved, or deserved, but which has been lavished on me, and when I remember that the grace came at the cost of the life of another, then I am joyfully motivated to give that grace to others. For the believer, harsh, critical, impatient, and irritated responses to others are always connected to forgetting or denying who we are and what we have been given in Jesus. Simply put, if we've been saved by grace, we'll extend that grace to others. Of course, there are two sides to every coin, right? Or two extremes on every pendulum. And so while some of us might have that temptation or tendency to, to point out sin in others from a harsher, self-righteous place, I know that many others might have the temptation to do the opposite, right? To be too nice and, and not want to stir up any drama or controversy or hurt anyone's feelings. And, and, and so they don't say anything at all, which is equally not as helpful uh, theologian Tabidi Anyabwile writes, one temptation we can face is to be all rebuking and no forgiving. If you are excited about the prospect of rebuking someone, you're probably tempted toward being harsh. On the other hand, someone may gravitate toward forgiving and never seeing the need to rebuke others. If you are glad to forgive, Failing to offer a correcting word when it's needed may be your temptation. And such a failure is not more loving than being harsh. The Lord gives us a balanced instruction that includes both rebuking for sin and forgiving for repentance. So yes, re rebuking or, or correcting uh, one another is, is incredibly important for building up the body of Christ and into maturity and, and maintaining unity in the Spirit. Because the truth is, sometimes we need to be made aware of our sin through, through the words of a caring brother or sister in Christ so that we can recognize it and hopefully repent of it. We all need that. right? Again, we need each other. We need to watch each other's backs. But we're also reminded throughout Jesus' teaching in the Gospels that, that before we do rebuke someone, there's some things we need to, to do first. Right? We should make sure that we also have the humility and willingness to listen to rebuke ourselves when we need to hear it. And if we're not willing to do that, we have no right to rebuke anyone else. And in the same vein, we should make sure we're checking the plank in our own eye before we look for the splinter in someone else's, right? It's only from that place of humility and, of course, in the knowledge of the grace we've been given for our own downfall for our own sin, it's only from that place where we'll then be able to rebuke one another with love and with gentleness and with compassion and with empathy, with a readiness by God's grace to go on a journey of restoration toward repentance with them. And yes, even forgiving that person seven times a day if that's what it takes. On that end, it's, it's been said that the, the Pharisees at that time had a three strikes and you're out kind of rule, 
which means that once a, a fourth sin or mistake was committed against them by the same person, they didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Jesus here is actually more than doubling that number, right? A number which the Gospel of Matthew tells us was, was uh, in direct response to a question about forgiveness from Peter, one of his disciples. In that account, Jesus actually tells his disciples that they must forgive 70 times 7 times if needed. So again, Jesus' answer in both of these Gospels tells us two important things on that subject. Again, that forgiveness is a must for all believers. It's not optional. It's a must. And even more than that, that there's no limit to the amount we're to forgive those who repent. Of course, that number seven is also a reference to the Sabbath day, a day of restoration, as well as the Sabbath year, a year in which all debts were to be forgiven. All in all, we can see, regardless of of what angle you look at it, that our call to forgive is meant to reflect the image and nature of God, a loving God who is full of mercy and compassion, who is quick to forgive us when we repent of our sins, because Jesus has already paid the penalty for it all at the cross. Exodus 34, 6-7 says, The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God forgives. For, he, he, he extends his love to a thousand generations. God forgives. It's who he is. And therefore, so shall his people. So the message is pretty clear. Forgiveness is analogous with the character of God, which was displayed in full and given to us freely through Jesus Christ at the cross. And so our response, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's that simple. And again, practicing this this unconditional grace toward others isn't, isn't meant to be something we're forced or threatened to do. No, forced forgiveness isn't really forgiveness at all. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Right? So keeping his commandments, like forgiving one another, is, is a response to our love for him and his love for us. It's a natural response, a supernatural response to our love for him and his love for us. Like the faithful servant serving his master, this is simply our duty as followers of Jesus. And we should be happy to do it as born-again Christians, especially in light of everything he's already done for us. Which also means then that, that if we are lacking the capacity to forgive or, or to even rebuke others with, with a spirit of gentleness and love, the, the answer here isn't, isn't to try harder, Right? Or, or, to, or to try and force ourselves to do it out of some sense of religious duty. Rather, the answer is to, first of all, get on our knees at the foot of the cross 
humble ourselves before the throne of the King of Kings with, with an attitude of repentance. The answer is, is to place our faith back upon Jesus Christ, who will graciously restore us and pour out his grace upon us in our time of need. Because again, it's not the size of, of our faith that matters. It's the object of our faith, which makes all the difference here. And so when our faith is set upon Jesus, even if that faith is, is, is as small or smaller than a mustard seed, we will then have the capacity and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to live for him and do what's expected of us, no matter how hard or impossible it might seem. As, as Paul David Tripp again writes, no matter how impossible the call of God to you seems, he will be with you and empower you to do it by grace. And, and that's the thing as well that, that we have to remember that when we forgive others, when we forgive others, it's not just for you, right? Or, or even for that person that you're forgiving, necessarily. It's, it's ultimately to display to the world that God is supernaturally at work within us. Where, where people will ask, how were you able to forgive that person for what they did to you? And we can say, because of Jesus. This, so this is an opportunity for us to be set apart from our culture. Again, one which has become so mired in, in conflict, division, cancel culture, self-righteous judgment, disguises tolerance, and where everyone seems to be constantly offended and angry and bitter all the time with no room for patience or grace. As Christians, we're meant, we're meant to show them a better way. We're meant to show them the love of Jesus. We're meant to show them what it looks like to live within a kingdom where honesty, humility, compassion, repentance, and grace have the final word over sin and wrongdoing and offense. We're meant to show them what it means to live in a kingdom where love covers a multitude of sins. Therefore, as citizens of the kingdom of God, let us then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and because of the grace we've been given, continually strive to restore and forgive one another in Jesus' name and for the glory of God. Amen?